Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Please be seated, and we are going to be in Luke chapter 5 today, Luke chapter 5, and so if you brought your Bibles with you, that's where you're going to want to be, New Testament, so farther to the right, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, so Luke chapter 5, and as always, if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, if you don't own one, there are stacks of them out in the foyer out there, would encourage you to grab one of those and take that, and take it home to be yours, under one condition, that you read it, Okay. Um, so you might be asking, you say, hey, Dan, weren't you up here last week? Yes, very astute of you. I was. Um, uh, and so we, are, we, we here at Redeemer are committed to a team approach to preaching. You'll hear multiple voices and many different perspectives from up here. We remain committed to that. Um, but what we're going to do is, from time to time, I'm going to take a couple of weeks uh, to just be, uh, to be up here for maybe two, three weeks, something like that, uh, to, do, to do specific theories or for us to be able to just spend to time together. Uh, as a uh, as a congregation and as your new dean as well, and so um, so I'm, uh, I was up last week. This week, Jason Myers is up next week as well. But sometimes you'll see me up here for a few weeks in a row. Although we remain and always will committed to a team approach to this work. Okay, so last week we began a new series called Missio Dei, which means the mission of God, and we unpacked how Jesus described his own mission with things like. Uh, moving in the power of the Spirit. He was sent to proclaim the good news of God, to how to, uh, to set free those who are oppressed, to heal those who are hurting, to bring about the renewal of all things. And we talked about how Jesus says later on that just as, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, the church. So Jesus' mission is the church's mission, or the church's mission is Jesus' mission, depending on how you want to look at that. So today, I want to look at another moment in the life of Jesus as he begins to gather the first members of the church, this church that would share his mission, carry on his mission after his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, um, the, the first people who would, uh, who would be his disciples. So this is a pretty common word. I think most people know that, that Jesus had disciples or followers or learners, students, um, and, and uh, and it, but I don't think it's quite as well known sort of where these disciples come from or what, what, their, what their purpose was, what life was like for them as well. And so these disciples followed Jesus around. Uh, there, was a, there was a large group of folks, but specifically 12 that followed him around as well. And, and in fact, throughout the book of Acts, and we see, we see in early Christianity that early Christians were not called Christians at all. They were actually called followers of the way. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see it over and over and over again that Christians are referred to, uh, are referred to as followers of the way. And so part of that is Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so being a disciple is following Jesus in his, uh, in his way. 
Now, uh, in, uh, to give some context to this as well, Jesus was a rabbi or a teacher, and he wasn't the only one that was around. There were other rabbis and teachers around as well, and he was in the rabbinic tradition. And for a rabbi, uh, not anyone could just call themselves that rabbi's disciple. You couldn't just say, I am now your disciple. The teacher has, to, has the right to accept them uh, or and to invite them or even to turn away disciples because these people were going to follow this rabbi so close that they were going to watch everything that he did in every way that he did it. Uh, in fact, er, some early Jewish literature talks about being covered in the dust of the rabbi. You're following him so close as he's walking down the road that, uh, that you're going to get covered in the dust of his feet. And this is also, if you, have, uh, if you have some background in the church and have studied the Bible a little bit, you might think of a passage where Jesus sends out his disciples, and he tells them, if some place does not receive you, knock the dust off your feet in protest. And this is, this is what uh, he's talking about, is the dust of, of the rabbi on the people. And if they're not listening, then you need to dust, knock the dust off your feet in protest to who they are. So Jesus himself sets parameters on who is and who is not not a disciple. We don't have a long time to go into that today. Read Luke chapter 14, and there's some pretty amazing things that he says in there, like, you have to die to yourself. You have to pick up your cross. You have to follow Jesus. He says some pretty important things about who is, uh, who is going to be his disciples, and that you can see as well that these disciples were not just passive learners, but were also actively sent out. We're going to see that as well today. Actively sent out to spread the gospel of the kingdom and the good things that Jesus is teaching. He's sending them out to carry on that teaching as, uh, as well. And if you have a background in church, you might be familiar with what we would call the Great Commission. Where Jesus, this happens in Matthew 28, where Jesus looks at his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And he says, you, disciples, go and make disciples baptizing them, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always. So here's this, Jesus saying, you know my mission, you have been my disciples and learned, and so now you are going to be sent out to be able to make disciples as well. Okay, so this is the context of discipleship and Jesus' disciples. So let's get into the details of some of the very first disciples that, that he called. And just as last week, we find a framework, we find a template for how Christ does his work is still the same way that we go about doing the work today. And I believe that we can look here into how Jesus has called these disciples to see a pattern of how he's calling us as well to be disciples of his also. If we are Christians, we are followers of the way. The word Christian just means little Christ is all that it means. So we are imitating him following him, pursuing him. That's what a life in Christ is like. That's what it means to be a Christian. So let's look, see how he called his first disciples to see how that starts to, to press into our lives as well. Okay, so Luke chapter 5, verse 1, says this. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennaris, Gener the G word that I can never pronounce properly. Um, uh, he was by the Sea of Galilee-ish, okay? Um, and, uh, and, uh, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. 
the boat is up on shore. They're off to the side washing their nets. <clears throat> I want you to see right from the start that this story begins with the Word of God. It always comes back to the Word of God. It always comes back to God revealing himself in the Scripture. It always comes back to God pursuing the people. It always comes back to this, the, the truth and the Word of God. Everything else that happens in the Scripture itself all surrounds the need for us to know God and to belong to God. And the way that God has revealed who God is is through his Word. And we see things happen here as well, that Jesus is gathered, he's preaching and teaching, He's preaching the word of God, it says, and the people are pressed up against him. Romans chapter 10 says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And so there's a, there's a constant push for the spread, teaching, uh, proclamation of the word of God. And what is that, that word of God? What is it? Well, Paul described it, the gospel that we preach, in, uh, in the passage from 1 Corinthians today. He just sums up the heart of the word of God, where he says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So what he just said then was, I'm carrying this message. I, what I also received, I'm giving to you. So this is not Paul's message that he made up. This is the word of God that has been given to him that he is passing on. And here's of first importance. And there's a lot of other things to learn and to grow in and to, uh, and to pursue and to be challenged by. But of first importance, he says, is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is, who is also Peter, who we're going to read about in just a minute, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, to me, he says. Of first importance, Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was truly dead, and then three days later he rose again, defeating death itself, defeating sin. That is of first importance to who we are, because this makes a difference for everything. If this is not true, if, if it is not true that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, if there is no atoning work of Christ on the cross, if there is no victory in the resurrection, Paul tells us, why are we even here? Our faith is in vain if the resurrection hasn't taken place. If Jesus was just a wise teacher a long time ago, then his claims of his divinity make him insane. Right? Anybody who calls themselves God, who's not actually God, is insane. And so, so he can't just be a wise teacher then. And so if it all comes down to whether the resurrection is true or whether it's not, because if not, let's stop playing games and pretending. But if it is, then everything is different. If it is, if the resurrection is true, if God has become one of us, borne our sins upon him on the cross was laid in our tomb, in our place, and then rose again, victorious, defeating our sin and death itself, then everything is different. It's not something that we can passively look at and go, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. 
I mean, I don't really do much with him. Like, I don't really follow. I mean, I, you know, I go to church every now and then. Like, it's sort of, uh, but I know that he's got me when I die. If the resurrection is true and the laws of nature have been shattered and that death itself has been dealt a death blow, then everything else is different. Everything in our lives are different because we have to say, if this is true, then all of the other things that Jesus said is true is as well. And so I have to do something with this. Like, you've got to engage this truth, friend. Is the tomb empty or is the tomb full? If the tomb's full, if that's where you stand, I'd love to sit and talk with you to try to prove to you that it's empty. If you believe that Jesus has risen again, then there's hope in the world. Then, then all of the other things that Jesus said is true, and we need to examine our lifestyle and, uh, and the things that we're pursuing and, uh, and the truth that we live by because we need to be followers of the way, the truth, and the life. It always comes back to the Word of God, and the Word of God is ultimately about Jesus. All right, so here's what happens. These boats are empty. They're there on, uh, on the shore. Fishermen are washing their nets. He gets into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he, Simon is also called Peter, is also called Cephas, okay? So I know, it's got lots of names. We can talk about that some other time. Um, uh, that maybe he was Southern. He's like Simon Cephas. There's, there's got to be two names. I don't know. Okay, so, uh, so getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's or Peter's, he asked him to be put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So why do you do that? That was kind of weird. Well, part of it is that this is just a natural amplification system. If you've ever sat on the edge of a lake really quietly, and there's somebody out in a canoe out in the middle, you can hear everything they're saying, even though they're just talking in regular voice, right? Because it just, it just kind of glide, the sound glides across the water. So he was out there so he could speak to more people. So there's a practical side to this. But there was also something else happening here as well. He didn't just choose any boat. He chose Peter's boat. Now, Peter is the one who would become Jesus' primary disciple. And so Jesus was not just preaching to faceless crowds, but he got into Peter's boat. Now, Peter's boat was his livelihood, his ability to eat and to live and to have a house and to care for his family is all tied up in this boat. It's his place of safety in storms. It's his place of, it's his place where he has spent hours fixing and mending and rowing and sailing and pulling in fish and, and, and slopping out all the goo that comes with lots of fish when you pull them into the boat. He knows every inch of this boat. And now Jesus has taken something of Peter's that is his everyday life and is the center of who he is, and he has stepped into that. It has now become a place where God himself dwells and has become an instrument through which Jesus is proclaiming the word of God to the people. This changes Peter dramatically. And I would ask you, What is your boat? And will you let Jesus step into it? To your house, to your marriage, to your profession, to your parenting, to your politics, 
to everything that you are, that you might know every inch of, and it's familiar, and it's yours, and it's a place of safety. And now Jesus wants to enter into the very intimate places of your life, to be present there, and to use those things in your example and witness in those things to then preach the good news to everyone who's around. Where is Jesus asking you Let me enter into, not just, don't just keep me caged up in church on a Sunday with people who wear funny dresses. Like, don't, don't just, don't just put, put Jesus there and compartmentalize him there. But he wants to get off of the shore and step into your boat and look you in the eye and say, will you push me out just a little bit farther? Because we have work to do. Where are you keeping Jesus on the beach? Love what that guy teaches over there. Love what he has to say to all those people out there. I'm going to listen while I'm doing my other things. I'm going to keep washing my nets. Where does he say, no, the invitation is to something greater, something closer, something relational, something real, something present. This is how Jesus wants to step into your life as well. And so he taught from Peter's boat. And in verse 4, it says, verse four, it says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep, so push the boat out farther, and let down your nets for a catch. And Peter answered him, Master, we toiled all night. They used to fish at night. We toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the net. So Jesus is now teaching an object lesson. Like he's, he's lectured a little bit. Uh, he's preached a little bit. Now he's going to bring a real object lesson here, something very tangible. And he is looking for something from Peter. Because here's the thing. The call of Jesus doesn't always make sense. It doesn't, it's not always convenient. It's not always rational. It doesn't always come at the opportune time. Peter is saying, I'm tired. You're a religious guy. That's awesome, and I love that. But don't tell me how to fish. Like, I've been there all night, and we didn't catch anything. Sometimes it just happened to Jesus. Like, I I get it, but now it's daytime, and that's not how this works. And we've already pulled our nets out, and we've already half-washed them um, in the boat. Um, And now you're asking us to pull the nets that we've already half-washed back into the boat, go back out where there's probably not any fish, and do it again respectfully. This does not make a whole lot of sense, Jesus. But he says this, and I love Simon. <laughs> Simon. Simon truly is one of my favorite apostles, disciples. I have 12 of them. Um, but anyway, the, um, but, but I love him because he's just so honest. Like He's like, Jesus, okay, I, like you just said it, I'll do it. I don't, I don't really believe much is going to happen here, but okay. What he says is, but at your word, I will let down the nets. What Jesus is after from Peter is not just a blind obedience. I told you to go put your boat out there. What he's looking for is trust. I know it doesn't make sense, Peter, but do you trust me? And so when he says, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, that's not a legalistic, fundamentalist, rule-following sort of following. 
That's trusting the one in whom you've been baptized. That's trusting in Jesus to say his way truly is better. Because Jesus says a lot of things that are backwards, like go back out and fish after you haven't caught anything and and everything is half cleaned and it's going to increase your work. That's backwards and doesn't make any sense. And then he says to us later on things like to save your life, you have to lose it. And the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And whoever is greatest among you must be the servant of all. And it is better to give than to receive. And if you are going to be my disciple, you must die to yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. He calls us to forgive at cost to ourselves, to give until it hurts, and have patience with those who would wound us. None of that makes any sense. All of that is get your nets back out and go back out and just trust me. Do you trust me? Yes, I'm asking you to do certain things and behave in a certain way. But do you trust me that this is actually going to bring about a joy and an abundance and a meaning and a purpose? This is about the person of Jesus who is standing in Peter's boat. This is what it's like for us who want to live lives as Christians as well. To look in the eye of the person who's standing in our boat and say, what would you have me do? even if it doesn't make any sense. I trust you. At your word, I will put down my nets. This is the opposite of the problem of the Garden of Eden, right? The opposite, where, where Adam and Eve were in the garden and God said, you can eat of any, any tree, all the fruit, everywhere, not that one. Just that one. Like You can't have that one. And they went, ooh. That one must be better than the others. And what God was saying was not that there was a magical fruit on that tree that would cause them destruction. He's saying, do you trust me that my ways are best? So I'm just asking you not to do that. And when they did that, it all went badly for all of us for all time. We are still in the place of of sin and brokenness. And if you don't believe me, look around or have children. <laughs> I mean, I love, I love my children. I'm not, I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying like, because, and then you're like, yeah, children are simple. No, I'm saying look at you as a parent raising your kids, and you will realize how much sin you have in your own life, right? This is the opposite, where it's saying, will you go out and do what I'm asking you to do? Faith in the person of Jesus. And so this is what happens when they trust in Jesus. Verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners, James and John, in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink with fish. Because there was so much fish. These are big boats. So let me just be honest with you. Here's how this would have worked if I was Peter standing on the shore. First, uh, I would have doubted that I had heard Jesus correctly, that this is what he wanted me to do, because it doesn't make any sense. And I would have rationally and logistically worked through it in my head to say this is not what Jesus would have said, because Jesus is much more organized than this. He would not send me back out fishing again, right? Then I would go, okay, that is what he said, and I would probably try to talk him out of it um, like Peter did. 
Then I would go out because I'll be like, all right, fine. I'm going to be obedient and I'll go out, but this isn't really going to work at all. And then I would have been amazed that trusting him actually brought about lots of fish. And I would have been astounded. And then the nets would have started ripping and the boats would have started sinking and I would have started going, did Jesus really think this through? Now, <laughs> now he's given us so much fish that our nets are breaking and our boats are sinking. Jesus, what have you done? Like, I, you know, my pendulum would go from on one hand, you were never going to catch any fish, to, oh, we are catching lots of fish, to Jesus, now you're going to sink us. Like, you have not, you didn't even know how much our fish, our boats held. This is, I knew this was going to go badly. And then I would fall on my knees and weep and say, Lord, I'm such a sinful man. I need to learn how to trust you. That when we follow you, we don't necessarily end up on a floating door as the love of my life sinks down in the frigid waters. Like that's not how this is going to end um, when you fill our boats with fish. Do we trust who Jesus is? Can we believe in the abundance that he wants to give? And, you know, I bet there was fear involved in the fishermen, too. I mean, one, it was hard to pull in those nets. And it was, I mean, that's, that's a lot of work. There's pain that's involved in that. They were just washing these nets, and now the nets are starting to rip as well. So there's some fear of like, oh, my gosh, there is this blessing that Jesus is bringing in this way. But now, but, but when they start seeing those nets pop, they're normal, just like us, right? That They're going, can, can I sustain this? Can we handle that? Now our boat is sinking. There's fear in the midst of it. Sure, this is what life is like following Jesus. I love what G.K. Chesterton said when he said that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been tried and found difficult, or it's been found difficult and not tried, is what he said. So Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and not tried. And so there's an aspect of, yes, life in Christ is going back and forth like this. Wait, did I hear properly? Well, wait, but now this seems like it's happening over here, and it constantly comes back to, do we trust Jesus? And I love Peter's response. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, which means he had to jump out of the boat, right? Like, he's out, he's out in the deep. He jumped out of the boat came to Jesus, fell down on his knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus revealed his heart in all of this. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Part of becoming a disciple is recognizing our need for a savior. God doesn't Call the equipped, he equips the called. God doesn't look and say, all right, who's worthy of being my disciple and who could do great things in here? Oh yeah, you've got a lot of gifts. Um, uh, you have tested properly on the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs. Like you're, you're, my, you're my person. No, he calls you and then he works through you. Peter is such a flawed man. And he will be his entire life. He just, Peter, Peter later on, when Jesus is going to be arrested, uh, he, <laughs> there's this great passage in John where, where they try to arrest him. And so Peter pulls out his sword and chops the high priest's servant's ear off, which would have been really nasty, right? Like he probably didn't just like 
flick it like Zorro and just boop off the ear. I mean, like, he would have gashed his head maybe down into his shoulder. I mean, he attacked the guy to try to protect Jesus. And Jesus said, what are you, what are you doing? No. No, put away your sword. And then he heals the servant. He puts his ear back on. I mean, what? And then, and then, and then he says, and then Jesus says to the to the the whole group of soldiers that are there, and the high priest and everyone who is there. He, they he says, "You've been looking for Jesus. I am He." And when he says, "I am," the name of God, all of them fall down. Like all of the soldiers fall on their face. Everyone falls on the ground because Jesus said. I am God, and I am the one you were looking for. And they could not stand in his power. You know, so Peter's like looking at his sword like, I guess he could have handled that without, <laughs> without me being all braveheart at the moment, right? Like I, he could have taken care of it. And this is constantly Peter. He's constantly impulsive. He's constantly violent. He's, he's racist at one point where he's afraid of what other people will see when he is, uh, when he is hanging out with one group of people uh, and doesn't want the other group of people to, to see him badly. And so he starts distancing himself. And Paul has to come, and Paul, Paul opposes him to his face. They have an argument about this until Peter's like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm such a sinful man. Peter will deny Jesus three times. I mean, like directly asked, are you a disciple of Jesus? And he goes, no, I am not. Three times. This is a constant problem in Peter's life. And here Jesus is calling him, to be my disciple, to follow me for this new life. I'm going to take this, what Acts calls an unschooled, ordinary man, and do amazing things through him. And I say, friends, we all in this room are flawed like Peter. And we're all ordinary. And listen, Jesus might not be calling you to go change the world. He wants you to be an ordinary person in a fishing boat, but that you use the platform that you have in your family, in your workplace, in your life, as a parent, as a husband, as a wife, uh, to be a platform through which he is going to proclaim the good news. And he is going to do it in your boat and through you. But do you trust him? Do you trust him for that? So Jesus says to him, as, G as Peter is on the ground, smiling. I think he's smiling. He doesn't say he's smiling, but I think he's smiling. And he looks at Peter and he says, do not be afraid. This is pastoral Jesus, right? This is the Jesus who loves so well in the midst of all of this that has just gone on. Peter's scared and shaking and he's all wet and he's there and he recognizes his own sinfulness and he's come and Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And by many means, people. From now on, you will be catching people. How loving and patient and forgiving and challenging. He's saying, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to work through you. Uh, I'm going to burn away the impurities. I'm going to bring about a life of this astonishment that you have seen over what I can do. And you are going to be called to be a part of that. And he sends Peter. And so, friends, I, I just want to challenge us this morning in this. Where, where is Jesus saying, 
I want to step into your life, your familiar life, and make everything different. From now on, you will be catching people. From now on means there's a marked change from this moment. That's no longer a, I'm listening from a distance, but to say, I'm in and I'm following. You can see from Peter over and over and over again his his deep desire for Jesus and and his hunger for Jesus and his astonishment at Jesus and his wavering in his faith and his sinful behavior. Like it all, it's all waffling in there and Jesus loves him so deeply and uses him so powerfully and he wants to do the same with you. And so right now, if you're thinking, Dan, like this sermon doesn't have anything to do with me because I'm here broken and I'm here uh, in a place of difficulty in my life and with my children and with my marriage. Or you're sitting here as a teenager and listening and you're like, I don't know, I'm just trying to make it through high school. And then there's all this, uh, there's all this difficulty around me. I, I can't even think about being used by Jesus. You're exactly where he wants you to be. In recognition of the need for him. That he wants to heal you and restore you and redeem you. He wants to teach you a new way of being a follower of him rather than a follower of the world. He wants to change your very life. And I know that you might be like, I, yeah, but I don't know if he can do that. I don't know if I trust that. Yeah, and so did Peter. Peter was like, I've been fishing all night and there's no fish out here. I don't know why you're asking me to go and do that. You might be in here like, yeah, I get that, but, but, but my marriage is so far in a place of dysfunction that, that I, I, I don't know why Jesus would ask me to press into it. I, don't know, I just don't think he can heal that. I think it's too broken. And then if you step in, if you go, okay, but I'm going to go where Jesus is calling me to go, you'll be like, like Peter who pulls in this, these nets of fish, this abundance to go. I didn't know this healing was possible. I didn't know I, I didn't know this abundance existed where I was trying so hard on my own in my own toil and couldn't get one fish. But then I do it your way in your call and obedience to you by the power of your spirit and look at the abundance. God is not calling you to be perfect. He's calling you to believe in his son Jesus Christ who will forgive you and in time make you perfect. And he has great things for you to do. And I'll leave you with this thought. It's going to cost you something. Like this all sounds great on one hand, right? I mean, there's a, yeah, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to send me, Jesus. Here I, here I go. Send me out in the boat and I'll catch fish for you and people. Like, yes, I'm ready to go. But just remember, it's going to cost you something. At the end of this passage, it says that Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John left their nets and their boats and went to follow Jesus. And that cost them financially, friendships. What was it like when they went back down to the harbor with all of their, uh, with all of their fishing buddies uh, and sat at the little pub down there, right, and discussed uh, how they had left their nets behind in order to go follow this, this teacher. They were surely mocked. What happens when they came home to their wives and children and went like, okay, 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 
hold on, I, this is going to sound really strange. And they're like, where are your nets? Well, well, I'm getting to that, right? There's this guy, and I mean, the, the, the explanation they would have to give to their families, the pride that they would have to swallow, it's going to cost you something. But everything that is good costs us something. And Peter at the end of his life, when he looks back after following Jesus, you know, the way that Peter was killed um, was he was killed preaching for Jesus. And they said that we're going to take you and crucify you. And he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified the same way that my Lord was. And so they crucified him upside down. In his last breath, he was honoring Jesus. And I don't think that Peter would have changed any minute of his life. So it's going to cost you something. It will. But what will you, you will experience as a disciple of Christ in pursuing him and being a follower of the way, the truth, and the life, you will make a difference in the lives of those who are around you. You will, you will bring people who do not know Christ to the knowledge and love of Christ. You will bring hope where there is darkness. You will bring joy where there is sadness. And in a culture that is so afraid and so angry, that, but they don't know what to do and they don't even know exactly what to be angry at. You get to bring a peace and a hope and a truth that will save the lives of the people. Everything is different from this point on. So, Jesus is standing on the shore. He's asking to get in your boat. Will you let him in? Will you let him use you? Will you let him heal you? Will you pursue him more closely than you ever have before? There is no room for a lukewarm faith in Jesus. Either the tomb's empty or the tomb's full. If the tomb's full, let's move to other things. If the tomb's empty, then Jesus is alive. And everything is different. And he's calling you into a life as his disciple. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give, you, we give you thanks for your son, Jesus Christ, for sending him not as some distant deity, but as someone who steps into the slime of our lives, all the gunk that's in the bottom of our fishing boats. Lord, I pray that this day you would move in the hearts of people in this room, that you would let them see you standing on the beach saying, do not be afraid that you would let them hear your call to a life of intimately following you and that your word and your spirit and your truth and your community can heal what is hurting, can mend what is torn, and can give a brand new life. Let them trust you, Lord. Let us fall on our knees in front of you, recognizing our own sinfulness and our need for your forgiveness. And let us hear your pastoral and loving voice telling us of our forgiveness and that we can shed our fear and that we can stand into a new life as your disciples. And may the Lord work powerfully through all of those in this room and following online and in the greenhouse and everywhere else. May you move powerfully that many people will come to follow you and know you through the words and witness and service and sacrifice of the people of this church.
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.